All right, so uh, having looked at, uh, well, just first of all, uh, by way of review, I guess I wanted to mention that uh, when I was last with us a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at uh, the, uh, the abomination of desolation that was, was set up in the temple. We looked at um, uh, the cleansing of the temple, and we looked at, at Antiochus, and we, uh, we saw how those things were, were prophesied by Daniel and how, in some respects, those things foreshadow uh, events and a person that are yet to come, namely Antiochus, uh, seeming to foreshadow the the man of lawlessness, the the ultimate antichrist figure, and uh, we saw this this theme of the the abomination of desolation that uh, that shows up here in the Maccabean period. I think um, I think Christ uses that in the uh, the Olivet discourse and, and so on in the Synoptic Gospels in, in reference to the. Uh, uh, the, the sack of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70 and ultimately pointing ahead to, uh, to the final abomination of desolation as described in, in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. So we looked at, at some of those kinds of themes here in the Maccabean period and, and more broadly through Scripture and kind of pointing ahead to the end times. And so having looked at, at those Themes and having looked at the, the prophecies in Daniel and how these events are prophesied and looking at those, those themes of martyrdom and resistance as we did, I think that we've, we've covered what is, in my estimation, some of the, the biggest and most important biblical and theological issues to be found in First and Second Maccabees. And so today what we're going to try to do is, is to wrap things up by way of an epilogue. And so uh, to work through the entire history that's laid out in First and Second Maccabees would be, uh, would be very tedious and probably, probably not particularly edifying. And so this morning I want to touch on some highlights um, from First and Second Maccabees that chronologically follow the, the cleansing of the temple and then trace out the, uh, the Maccabean dynasty down to the days of Roman rule some hundred years after Judas Maccabeus and uh, the cleansing of the temple. And so in our thinking, we might think of the, the cleansing of the temple as being kind of the, the high point and therefore worthy of being the end of the story, perhaps. The writers of First and Second Maccabees continue their respective histories to some great length after that. If I can borrow the words of uh, one scholar, J. Julius Scott, Jr., he put it this way. He said, Judas and his followers, except some of the Hasidim, who were content with gaining religious freedom, except for these who were content with religious freedom, now turned their sights toward political independence. Battle followed battle, periods of peace and compromise came and went. And that, that really does a pretty good job of, of summarizing a lot of the rest of what you find in First and Second Maccabees. You have battle following battle, periods of peace and compromise coming and going, ensuing fighting, and so on. And so let me just, just touch on a few things. First Maccabees 5, after the cleansing of the temple, you have Judas Maccabeus and his brothers engaging in some fighting with, uh, with various groups of Gentiles, Judas, and uh, Judas goes to fight uh, the Edomites. His brother Simon fights in Galilee, and then Judas and another brother Jonathan fight in Gilead against Gentiles who are disturbing the Jews in those regions. In chapter 6, we're told about King Antiochus. King Antiochus was away from Judea at the time when the temple was cleansed. And uh, at least according to the account in 1 Maccabees 6, he was badly shaken 
at the account of the temple being retaken and cleansed. And so 1 Maccabees 6.8 says he took to his bed and became sick from grief because things had not turned out as he had planned. And he then dies in the same year in which the temple was cleansed. And one of the, uh, I don't know if you'd say sad things, I guess, that we, that we find is that, that Judas Maccabeus and his brothers all pretty much die violent deaths in some way or another. First Maccabees 6 tells us about the death of Judas's brother Eleazar. And so this is, this is from First Maccabees 6, verses 40 through 46. Now a part of the king's army was spread out on the high hills, and some troops were on the plain, and they advanced steadily and in good order. All who heard the noise made by the multitude, by the marching of the multitude and the clanking of their arms, trembled, for the army was large and strong. But Judas and his army advanced to the battle, and six hundred men of the king's army fell. And Eleazar, called Avaron, saw that one of the beasts was equipped with royal armor. So uh, the king's army had brought these elephants from, from India into the fight, and they have these elephants, and they're taking them into the battle, and Eleazar sees that this one is equipped with royal armor and says it was taller than all the others, and he supposed that the king was upon it. So he gave his life to save his people and to win for himself an everlasting name. He courageously ran into the midst of the phalanx to reach it. He killed men right and left, and they parted before him on both sides. He got under the elephant, stabbed it from underneath, and killed it. But it fell to the ground upon him, and there he died. And... Um, and so what, uh, what happens to Eleazar dying in the midst of battle then eventually uh, comes to, to Judas and uh, his other brothers, as we said, die violent deaths as well. Um, in chapter 7, the, uh, the reigning Syrian family, the Seleucids, make a Jewish man named Alcimus a high priest. And Alcimus is not on good terms with the Maccabees, and so he joins up with a Gentile governor named Bacchides to, uh, to fight against uh, the Maccabeans and those allied to them. And uh, in, the, in the midst of, of this, after one of these battles, we have an incident that is, is kind of pivotal, pivotal for Roman Catholic theology, and that is namely that Judas Maccabeus finds uh, some dead Jewish men with idolatrous paraphernalia attached to them, and so he offers a sacrifice for these dead Jewish men. And this then is, is picked up in Roman Catholic theology as, uh, as a defense of, of purgatory, masses for the dead, and, and so on, that basically you can, you can pray or offer a sacrifice for those who have died in sin and, uh, and expect that there will be some blessing to come. So let me, let me first just, just read, the, read the account of, of what Judas did, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this uh, from a theological perspective. Uh, this is 2 Maccabees uh, 12, 38 through, uh, through 45. Then Judas assembled his army and went to the city of Adullam. As the seventh day was coming on, they purified themselves according to the custom, and they kept the Sabbath there. On the next day, as by that time it had become necessary, Judas and his men went to take up the bodies of the fallen and to bring them back to lie with their kinsmen in the sepulchres of their fathers. Then, under the tunic of every one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. And it became clear to all that this was why these men had fallen, namely 
They were idolaters, and God judged them in the battle. Uh, so they all blessed the, the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge, who reveals the things that are hidden, and they turned to prayer, imploring that the sin that had been committed might be wholly blotted out. And the noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness... It was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. And so, uh, so a couple things to keep in mind here. One, obviously, the text of Maccabees is not inspired scripture. So, uh, and so we have to take the thoughts of our author and compare them with scripture. What scripture says, Hebrews 9.27, is that it is appointed for man wants to die and afterward comes the judgment. And nowhere in canonical scripture do we read that it is in any way acceptable to either pray for the dead or to expect that God will be merciful to those who have died in their sins. And so if you read the words of Jesus in John chapter 8 as he's going back and forth with the Pharisees, he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And Jesus doesn't elaborate at great length upon what he means by that phrase, but it's pretty clear that to die in your sins means to die without God and without hope, period, end of the story. And uh, unfortunately, though, uh, Roman Catholic theology has, has picked up on this and has used this as a defense of the doctrine of purgatory and as a defense of the way of, of hoping to, to do something spiritually significant for, uh, for those who have, de- who have died. One thing worth pointing out, though, is that it doesn't even work in the Roman Catholic system. The Roman Catholic system, without going into too much detail, is divided into mortal sins and venial sins. And according to traditional Roman Catholic theology, if you die in a mortal sin, you're, uh, you're cut off, you are condemned. But if you die in venial sin, a lesser category of sin, then there, there is, in the Roman Catholic system, a belief that, that there can be hope for your soul, you're, you're put in purgatory, and you can be prayed out, or, or whatever. The problem, though, here with this text is that these men died in a mortal sin. Idolatry is a mortal sin. And so, uh, so this text does not even actually defend and argue for what... Roman Catholic theology would say that it argues for, namely that, uh, that you can get someone out of purgatory who has committed a venial sin, because what this is dealing with here is, a, is in fact a mortal sin. And so, um, any, any comments or questions here on, uh, on that, Jamie? Yeah? Expecting that those who have fallen would rise again, and he was looking 
<laughs> yes. Right. Well, I mean, the uh, if you look if you look at the last line there, I, I think I think there's some I think even even in the text there's some mixed and muddled thinking going on in the in the mind of the author because on the one hand early on in verse 45 he says um, looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, therefore he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from from their sin because it, on the on the one hand he's he's thinking about resurrection and the reward laid up. For uh, for the godly, and these people obviously didn't do that. And then he closes out the chapter or verse forty five um, by saying that he made atonement for the dead, which which doesn't which doesn't happen. That only only repentance and faith is uh, the way by which uh, atonement uh, comes comes to us. And um, so so yeah, um, but that's I think. That is a kind of a significant aspect of, of Maccabees, just just to be a, a, for us to be aware of that. Roman Catholic theology picks up on that and uh, and runs with it. And in reply, again, we would say one: this is this is not canonical scripture, and nowhere in the canonical scriptures do you have any hint that this kind of this kind of thing is true or godly. And number two, um, that even within the framework that that Roman Catholics try to put this, it, it doesn't actually work because because they're they're talking about venial sin. What's going on here is in in their terminology a mortal sin, and they I don't I don't think they would even have traditionally said that for idolaters you can make sacrifice sin. It's okay. So yeah, Jamie. What he was attempting to do. Yeah. 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 I think I think it's debatable, kind of in a in a subjunctive sense, whether it was so that they might be in the sense of. Maybe, maybe not, or in the sense that they might be, so that they would be. I think, I think that's a kind of a bit of a uh, semantical question that, at least in the English translation before me, is a bit is a bit ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so. Anyways, that's uh, one of the unfortunate uh, incidents that, that takes place here and has been has been picked up and uh, put to use in uh, in a very ungodly way. Uh, nevertheless. Um, as uh, in First Maccabees chapter seven, uh, the Seleucid king sends a commander named Nicanor against Judas Maccabeus, and Nicanor goes up to Jerusalem and verbally threatens the temple, and he says, "Unless Judas and his army are delivered into my hands this time, then if I return safely, I will burn up this house." And so we have a very, uh, very militant threat on the temple by Nicanor, and Judas and his forces defeat Nicanor, they kill Nicanor, they cut off his head and his right hand that he had stretched out against the temple, and they bring them back kind of as trophies of victory and hang them up outside of Jerusalem. And this victory over Nicanor was so highly regarded by the Jews that they decreed that that day, the 13th 
uh, of the month of Adar should be celebrated every year. And Josephus said in his Antiquities of the Jews, uh, written in the late first century, so probably 140, well, wait, no, I guess 240, 250 years after this, uh, that that the Jews were still celebrating that day uh, that, uh, that... Judas Maccabeus and his company uh, defeated this man Nicanor, and that's uh, that's at that high point that the text of Second Maccabees concludes. Second Maccabees basically ends after the defeat of Nicanor. Um, First Maccabees, however, continues slogging out the details of the the ups and downs. Again, as J. Julius Scott summarized, it battle following battle, periods of peace and compromise coming and going. 1 Maccabees 9 tells of how uh, this man Bacchides shows up again and uh, Judas Maccabeus falls dead in battle. And so Bacchides has uh, 20,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, and Judas on the other side has only 3,000 men. Many of them get scared and desert, and he only has 800 men. So, uh, so he's 800 against 22,000, and uh, Judas Maccabeus falls dead in battle, so let me just read that account from. Uh, I think I've put that in the uh, in the notes for you. First Maccabees nine, uh, beginning in verse seven. When Judas saw that his army had slipped away and the battle was imminent, he was crushed in spirit, for he had no time to assemble them. He became faint, but he said to those who were left, "Let us rise and go up against our enemies. We may be able to fight them." But they tried to dissuade him, saying, "We are unable." Let us rather save our own lives now. Let us come back with our brothers and fight them. We are too few. But Judas said, Far be it from us to do such a thing as to flee from them. If our time has come, let us die bravely for our brothers and leave no cause to question our honor. Then the army of Bacchides marched out from the camp and took its stand for the encounter. The cavalry was divided into two companies, and the slingers and the archers went ahead of the army, as did all the chief warriors. Bacchides was on the right wing, flanked by two companies. The phalanx advanced to the sound of the trumpets, and the men with Judas also blew their trumpets. The earth was shaken by the noise of the armies, and the battle raged from morning till evening. Judas saw that Bacchides and the strength of his army were on the right. Then all the stout hand stout-hearted men went with him, and they crushed the right wing, and he pursued them as far as Mount Azatos. When those on the left wing saw that the right wing was crushed, they turned and followed close behind Judas and his men. The battle became desperate, and many on both sides were wounded and fell. Judas also fell, and the rest fled. Then Jonathan and Simon took Judas, their brother, and buried him in the tomb of their fathers at Modain and wept for him. And all Israel made great lamentation for him. They mourned many days and said, How is the mighty fallen, the Savior of Israel? Now the rest of the acts of Judas and his wars and the brave deeds that he did and his greatness have not been recorded, for they were very many. And uh, so that is uh, the the count of the death of uh, what in many ways is the protagonist of, uh, of these books, Judas Maccabeus. And after Judas's death, uh, his leadership role passed on to a couple of his brothers. First, uh, there, was, there was Jonathan. Um, again, to borrow the words of J. Julius Scott, uh, Jonathan exploited the internal Seleucid situation to great advantage, succeeding in expanding Jewish-held territory and acquiring virtual independence. 
Although the Hasmonean family, that's the name given to the Maccabean family, the Hasmonean family were ordinary priests rather than from the high priestly line of Zadok. In 152 BC, Jonathan became high priest. The position was to remain in the family until Roman occupation. And so, uh, to make a long story short, you had uh, some infighting among the leaders of the, the Seleucid dynasty. And so, uh, if you think back to, to earlier in our, in our discussions, uh, the way that Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, became king was because his brother, his older brother, who was to be the rightful ruler, had been imprisoned by the Romans. That man's name was Demetrius. And after, uh, after Antiochus' death, Demetrius comes back and he starts trying to, to take up the kingdom. Meanwhile, uh, there are others who are trying to hold on to it for Antiochus' son. And so you've got some, some infighting among the leadership. And meanwhile, Jonathan is trying to, uh, to maintain the, uh, the quasi-independence that they've established and trying to expand upon that and uh, seems somewhat successful in, uh, in doing so. And so he's trying to savvily uh, navigate his way through things, forming alliances on one side and then another. He's eventually killed by a Seleucid general named Trypho in 143 BC. So this is 20 years after the temple had been cleansed. And then Jonathan uh, was succeeded by another one of the Maccabean brothers named Simon. And uh, like Jonathan, Simon served as both a military leader for the Jews and also as a high priest. And 1 Maccabees 14, uh, 4 through 15, eulogizes Simon and tells, uh, tells about what he did. And so he says this, The land had rest all the days of Simon. He sought the good of his nation. His rule was pleasing to them, as was the honor shown him all his days. To crown all his honors, he took Joppa for a harbor and opened the way to the isles of the sea. He extended the borders of his nation and gained full control of the country. He gathered a host of captives. He ruled over Gazara and Beth Zur and the citadel, and he removed its uncleanness from it, and there was none to oppose him. They tilled their land in peace. The ground gave its increase, the trees of the plains, their fruit. Old men sat in the streets. They talked together of good things, and the youths donned the glories and garments of war. He supplied the cities with food and furnished them with the means of defense till his renown spread to the ends of the earth. He established peace in the land, and Israel rejoiced with great joy. Each man sat under his vine and fig tree, and there was none to make them afraid. No one was left in the land to fight them. The kings were crushed in those days. He strengthened all the humble of his people, and he sought out the law and did away with every lawless and wicked man. He made the sanctuary glorious and added vessels to the sanctuary. And so, uh, so such was the eulogy that they gave to, uh, to Simon. Simon, unfortunately, and two of his sons were murdered by one of Simon's uh, son-in-laws in 134 B.C. And so Simon at that point is succeeded by his son John, who was known to history as John Hyrcanus. And the text of 1 Maccabees ends with John Hyrcanus learning about the murder of his father and his brothers and then killing uh, those who had also been sent to kill him. So they killed, in other words, they, they killed Simon. They killed a couple of the sons of Simon. They're on their way to kill John Hyrcanus. John Hyrcanus finds out about it, and he kills those who have been sent to kill him. And so, uh, so it's a very, very violent, very topsy-turvy period. And, uh, and things 
kind of degenerate, I would say, as you, as you go further down the line. And so uh, under John Hyrcanus, you have some territorial expansion. Judah uh, gets bigger. And uh, they also, uh, interestingly enough, destroy the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritans had, had built a, a temple on, uh, on Mount Gerizim, and John Hyrcanus uh, destroyed that temple in 108 B.C. And so if you think to this, the discussion between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, um, they're talking about the right place to, to worship. And she says, well, you Jews say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Our father said that we're supposed to worship here on this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim, where, uh, where this temple had been. And uh, John Hyrcanus uh, destroys that. And uh, Josephus said that John Hyrcanus had been a disciple of the Pharisees, but had had a falling out with them and then, uh, and then left their party. And so by, this, by the time you get to the, at least by the late Maccabean period, if not the early Maccabean period as well, you do have, uh, you do have some of the sects that you see in the New Testament time, the Pharisees and, uh, and the Sadducees up and, up and running. John Hyrcanus is succeeded in uh, 104 B.C. by his eldest son, a man named Aristobulus, or Aristobulus I. He reigns only one year. He imprisoned his close relatives and allowed his own mother to die in prison of hunger and had one of his brothers murdered. And so you can see that uh, in Aristobulus alone, things are, things are not going altogether well for these successors and whatever was good and godly seems to be unraveling pretty fast and after one year of of leading uh, the Jews he himself dies of illness and after his death his his widow a woman named Salome Alexandra released the surviving brothers of Aristobulus from prison and she herself marries one of them, a man named Alexander Janaeus who uh, rules over the Jews from 103 BC and uh, J. Julius Scott described Alexander Janaeus by saying that he modeled neither the ideals of the priestly Maccabean movement nor the high values of Hellenistic culture. He was more of a Hellenized Asian despot. His personal life was characterized by debauchery of the worst kinds. And then after he dies, the kingdom passes on to his wife, this woman, Salome Alexandra. And uh, she rules from 76 B.C. to 67 B.C. Josephus said that if she ruled the nations, if she ruled the nation, the Pharisees ruled her. And, uh, and so Josephus had said uh, that, uh, that as her husband, Alexander Janaeus, was dying, that he counseled her basically to, to split her rule with the Pharisees or to kind of incorporate the Pharisees into her ruling of the nation. And apparently that's... Uh, that's what she did. And then uh, things continued to degenerate and fall apart under Alexandra's son. Um, you have a man named Hyrcanus II who becomes high priest. Uh, his brother, Aristobulus II, desired to rule and become the military leader. And so after Ale- uh, Salome Alexandra's death, the forces of Aristobulus II defeat Hyrcanus II. And Hyrcanus uh, was willing to hand over both the civil and priestly authority to his brother and just step aside in peace, but matters didn't end there. There was a man named Antipater from Idumea, what we would think of as, as the territory of Edom, who enticed Hyrcanus to get back in the fight and fight, up, fight against his brothers, and then the Romans become involved. 
and uh, they first help Aristobulus and then turn against him. And ultimately, the Romans lay claim to Jerusalem in 63 B.C. And in that year, uh, the Roman general Pompey comes to Jerusalem and enters into uh, the Holy of Holies. And under Roman rule, for the next 20 or 25 years or so, there are various intrigues still from some of these players, Aristobulus and Aristobulus II, Hyrcanus II, and uh, this Idumean governor Antipater, and then also the generation that follows them. There's still these intrigues and infighting. And so finally, the last Maccabean ruler, uh, Aristobulus II's son Antigonus, is executed in 37 BC. And at that time, the son of Antipater, a man known to history as Herod the Great, emerges as the ruler. And so this is, this is the beginning of, of Herod the Great, who is the Herod of uh, the time of the birth of Christ, the Herod who, uh, who wants the Christ child dead, who slaughters the baby boys of Bethlehem, etc. And if you know anything about the history of Herod the Great, this is, uh, this is right in line with his character. He has uh, at least one of, his wife, uh, one of his wives executed, has some of his children executed. This man is, is ruthless, paranoid, and ugly all around. Now, obviously, None of this that we've covered this morning is inspired biblical history, but nevertheless, its importance lies in that it does cover a portion of, uh, of intertestamental, intertestamental history leading up to the birth of Christ. And so we kind of come down the line from the Maccabeans through this period of infighting and intrigue until finally you have Herod the Great on the scene, and of course we know Herod the Great is king at the beginning of, of New Testament times. And so this shows us the spiritual darkness that overshadowed the Jews. And so is it any wonder that Isaiah says when Christ is born, behold, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. There was a lot, a lot of darkness going on, though they had the, the law and the scriptures and a functioning priesthood in Jerusalem. There was a lot of darkness that was going on. And for the godly among the nation of Israel, this darkness around them should have heightened their desire for the, the consolation of Jerusalem. They would have known that all was not right. And so we see uh, in, the, in the Gospels uh, around the birth of Christ, we see people like, like Simeon and Anna who were longing for the, the redemption and the consolation of Jerusalem. And it wasn't just them because uh, Luke 2 uh, says that, that after, after Anna had, had seen Christ, that she, she went out and spoke about Christ to the others who were longing for the consolation of Jerusalem. And so even though there was this time of some political independence or relative political independence, these were times that were filled with fighting and violence and immorality, even family infighting, and lust for power. And many of these whom we have considered today are the descendants of Mattathias, this priest who took a stand for the law of God and who served his people and refused to, uh, to go along with the paganism that was being imposed upon him. And I think that we find in this sad history of the, the degeneration of the descendants of Mattathias what we could call spiritual entropy. Now, uh, I don't know of anybody else who would use that phrase, spiritual entropy, but if you think back to your days in science, what is, what is entropy? Does anybody, anybody have a working definition of entropy? Mark? Things go from a higher level to a lower level. That's right. That's right. It's, 
entropy is, is increasing disorder. And that's the way that, that things naturally, naturally work. If you, if you uh, just as a, an example, if you have a teaspoon of salt and you dump it in a, a cup of hot water, the salt is going to naturally dissolve and dissipate in the water. And so you have these highly ordered systems, the salt, the water, mix them together, and, and it, it's going to, going to dissipate, increasing disorder. You don't naturally take a cup of salt water and expect, well, that naturally it's going to, to separate out into a highly ordered system of water on the one hand and then salt on the other. The tendency of things in, in our world is to tend towards greater and greater disorder. And I think that we see the same thing, spiritually speaking, happening during during this period. If people are just left to themselves, they naturally trend towards greater disorder, spiritually speaking. And part of this is, uh, is God punishing sin with, with greater sin. And so when, when people give themselves over to sin, God in turn hands them over to their sin. And I think we, we see some of that illustrated here. We see it also in, in Romans chapter 1. Could somebody read for us Romans 1? 18 to 32. Sam, thanks. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they were, so they are without excuse. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All the way down to the end of the chapter. Thanks. Foolish, 
Thank you, Stan. And what we see in, in Romans 1 is this, this sad corruption and continuing corruption of mankind and God giving them over. You have this, uh, this repeated phrase there, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. And uh, verse, verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And so you have this, this kind of stair step going downward and downward as God gives people over to their sin. People run headlong in their sin, do, do what they want, and God hands them over. And this is, this is that, that tendency of, of spiritual entropy towards greater and greater Disorder, And this is a trend that we see played out for us again and again in, in the Old Testament history. We see it here, here in the Maccabean period. And the point is, is that one's standing with God is in no way guaranteed just because someone happens to be a son or a daughter of Abraham or a son or a daughter of David or a son or a daughter of a high priest who does a good thing like Mattathias. And... We see this again and again in Old Testament history. And we see it in the descendants of David, right? If you look at the, look at the kings and their degeneracy, you see it in the, the descendants of the priests. Just look at the, the wickedness that is committed in the tabernacle by, by the sons of Eli. These men are descendants of Aaron. And so the point is, is that the spiritual safety does not lie in physical descent, certainly not, nor does it lie in outward attachment to the people of God. Because you have these, uh, some of these Maccabean uh, folks who are functioning as both high priests and as, uh, and as civil authorities, but yet they're completely ungodly in, in their conduct and, and wickedness. And so safety doesn't lie in, in outward attachment to the, to the people of God. Spiritual safety doesn't lie in our physical descent. Ultimately, spiritual descent or spiritual safety has to do with our hearts being cleansed by the blood of Christ through faith in Him and us turning to Him in, in true repentance. And ultimately, it's our hearts that are the problem with humankind, and therefore, any answer to our problem of sin has to also start with our hearts being cleansed by Christ and made right, and turned to him. So any, any questions or comments? That's, that's pretty much all I've got for, uh, for today, so we may call time a little bit early. But, but any, any questions or comments on, on kind of what we've, what we've talked about today or anything else kind of in, in this uh, series that we've, that we've done? Jamie? Mm. Sometimes I think that 
Yeah, that's that's true. Um, that yeah, I think I think that's a that's a good a good and, and fair point. Um, and that uh, that yeah that that se- seeking seeking earthly advancement and even seeking le- legitimate things like um, like I think I think in in the in the Maccabean period we've we've got kind of a mixed bag in the in the some of the some of the moves made are legitimate some of the moves made are are illegitimate and uh, and that even in seeking legitimate things it's possible if uh, if not grounded in the Word of God and having a heart that's sanctified by the Holy Spirit if if those if those things are absent then it's possible you know at any time for us to to veer off either um, you know I think of uh, I think of for instance, the, the issue of education. Education is, is great, is, is wonderful. But if if uh, you know if someone is, is pushed and pushed in uh, towards towards higher learning, and they're not grounded in the scriptures and grounded in faith in Christ, then that can be their uh, be their ultimate undoing. Um, if they seek after worldly wisdom and not and not godly wisdom and and so yeah I think you I think you raise a raise a good point likewise the same thing with the uh, with the issue of of wealth and uh, and you know earthly status and prestige these are not inherently evil things but uh, Paul says the the love of money is the is the root of all kinds of, of evil and so there's nothing wrong with you know leaving leaving your children a an inheritance but if you leave your children an inheritance and you haven't taught them the word of God and they're completely ungodly, that inheritance can be their greater destruction. They can make more of a mess of themselves with a million dollars than they can make with one dollar, right? And, um, and so, yeah, I think, I think you, I think you raise, a, raise a good point that, um, that even sometimes seeking, uh, seeking to do decent and worthwhile things and trying to, to help our family, if not... If we're not adequately thinking about things that can can lead to their demise, yeah, that's a good good comment. Any any follow up on that, Jamie? Right. <laughs> Any any other any other comments or thoughts as we try to wrap things up? All right. Um, well, let me just mention a couple notes about uh, about upcoming things. Lord willing, next week we'll start a uh, start a series on on church discipline, and so probably uh, somewhere in the range of two to four weeks. Uh, on the subject of church discipline, and then after that, Jamie and Stan, Lord willing, are going to be tag teaming on the issue of discipleship, and so, uh, so that'll be uh, what we've got ahead for for the new year. So, uh, with that, unless there's anything else, I'll close. Yeah, Jamie, go ahead. Okay, yeah, Antipater, yeah. Well, um, 
he's, it's, I, I don't know enough to say. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. So let me, let me look here. Uh, this is uh, kind of a helpful book, Jewish Backgrounds of the New Testament uh, by J. Julius Scott, Jr. And so, um, So yeah, it's it's not entirely clear if he is if he is an, an Edomite or or not. He I I just don't I just don't know enough to say. Um, but uh, on on that note, it is worth pointing out that uh, that Herod uh, married himself to for one of his wives a, a descendant of the Maccabeans to try to to try to give himself some uh, some street cred with. With the with the Jewish people, and so he tried to uh, tried to marry this woman. He she, by the way, is one of the ones uh, is one, and I don't, I'm I'm not sure if she's the only one or not. But uh, he had her executed uh, eventually. So um, didn't didn't turn out well for her to be married to uh, be married to King. But any, anyways, go ahead. So, so yeah, Aristobulus II and Hyrcanus II end up kind of fighting each other for for power and for the priesthood. And uh, Antipater uh, gets involved. Like I think, uh, I think at at an early point, Aristobulus II had had defeated Hyrcanus II, and then Antipater kind of steps in and tries to stir the pot and says to says to Hyrcanus, hey, get get back in the fight, let's let's beat your brother out. And so he does get back in the fight and and then um, yeah there's it's it's a little bit tricky to, to to keep track of because it seems like there's all these these shifting alliances and and it's it's kind of you know it seems very dog eat dog just I want to stab my way to the top, and if I have to form an alliance with you for now, and then form an alliance with your brother later, and stab you in the back, I'll do it to to get what I want. Right. Well, maybe. So, so he's uh, he had been appointed uh, governor. Uh, of of Idumea by Alexander uh, Janaeus, and at least according to J. Julius Scott, he set himself to gain power through the weak Hyrcanus, and so um, and so he's. I, I guess you could say, yeah, he's he's kind of like kind of like an outsider trying to trying to gain some power inside, and eventually it works out because uh, because his son um, uh, his son. Uh, becomes, you know, Herod, Herod the Great, who's king of king of Judea. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. It's, and it's even a little bit more confusing than that because there's the two Antipaters. There's like a father and a son. It was the the, the older Antipater who had been appointed governor, and then his son was the one who was trying to stir the pot. And then the second Antipater's son was was Herod the Great. And so it's like Herod the Great, and then Antipater Junior, Antipater Senior. And Antipater Senior, who was was the one who was originally appointed governor by Alexander Janaeus, so so yeah, it's a little bit uh, a little bit of a, of a tricky history, but uh, a lot of infighting, a lot of ungodliness, a lot of violence. Um, anything? Anything else? 
All right. Uh, well, with that, we'll, uh, we will adjourn. And Lord willing, next week we'll come back uh, look to the issue of church discipline.